Hello and welcome to the Activist Podcast, brought to you by Vegan FTA, Vegan for the Animals. I'm your host, Gareth Skur, and I'll also be joined by my wonderful co-host and wife, Jackie Norman. In this episode, we have the inspirational Geordie Casamajana. In the interview, Geordie explains what it is to truly be an ethical vegan. He also discusses his court case to have ethical veganism established as a philosophical belief within the UK legal system. We hope you are as inspired and learn as much as we did from this episode. And be sure to check us out on social media pages at VeganFTA on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube, where you can also find the series in video format. Jordi, thank you so much for being here with us today. You have said yourself that you have become known as the guy who changed history by being vegan. Uh, it's been over a year now since you won your landmark case. Congratulations. And it is thank still, you. after all this time, a hot topic of conversation. And um, you have also gone on to release this fantastic book, Ethical Vegan, um, which not only talks about your case, but also what it means to truly be an ethical vegan. So we're really looking forward to talking with you about both. Um, before you became known as the guy who did the vegan thing, as you talk about in your book, you were previously known as the wasp man and also the monkey man. But it was um, an encounter with a wasp, which led you to look at the world differently and ask yourself, you know, three questions. Who am I? What is this? And what should I do? Uh, it was a fantastic part of your book, you know, reading about that encounter. And, you know, could you elaborate on these questions for our viewers and how you arrived at those? Okay, yes. Uh, I mean, the questions themselves is the questions that I've been asking myself all my entire life. But you think about it, is the question that everybody's asking themselves all the entire life, is the question that civilization has been asking itself. Even the animal kingdom, any animal that is born, the first thing that he does is, what's this? What is this? Uh, who I am? How should I move? So they are the basic fundamental question of the animals of this planet. But I never articulate them as such until I wrote the book. It's when I wrote the book that I realized, hold on, these are the actual three questions I've been asking all my life, and I never spell them out clearly. Because what happened with the book, the book is a combination of three stories. It's, it's intertwined. One is the story of, of veganism from the beginning to the end. The other is the story of my life, how I become a vegan, because there have been many uh, things that happened in my life that contributed to me to becoming a vegan. And once I was vegan, be, just keep going and becoming the actual vegan I'm today, which is different than the vegan I was yesterday. Uh, and, and the third is the, my case, how my case developed. And in fact, when I was writing about this, I realized that the beginning of these three stories matched the, these three questions. So the beginning of uh, who are, my life started with the question of who I am. The first time you cry, you you just you just there and at the side wall, you have a brain, but the brain starts to build that question constantly. You never find the answer. You keep building the answer through your life. The, the, my little case was the, the question of what is this? Because it all started with an email I received. And I asked myself, what is this? And I opened the email and that started a two years litigation that ended up with the protection of veganism. Uh, so the, and then we have the, the uh, so we have the, the story of veganism. We have the story of my case. Uh, and then uh, the, the, the other question is, what should I do? Which is basically the ethics. So all animals, we move. So we have the ability to decide what to do. And therefore, that was basically the third story of coming about what, what is veganism, what is this behavior. So, so the, basically, the questions are universal, are the basis of all kind of conundrums in philosophies, if you think about it. But they become crystallized in three actual questions in my book. Uh, the, the only thing that my book does is kind of stops in my life, uh, looks at what, who I am now, how I got to here, but it's not the end of it. Obviously, every day uh, I'm building my next book, uh, whatever it will be in 10 years' time. The, still, the three questions will still be asked, but the answers might be different. I love that because, you know, in your book, reading it, we, we hear from, from vegans all the time, you know, that defining moment and they connect with a cow or a sheep or a chicken or something that you normally eat. And that is that defining moment. But for you, it was a wasp, which is just so unusual. And it was yeah. fantastic that you were able to make that connection. So, um, as yeah, we absolutely. Yeah, I don't want to talk too much about the story of the wasp because it's one of the interesting stories. Of the absolutely. It's <laughs> a yeah. surprise. But yeah, yeah, the point is, it could be anything. It was a sentient being 
than had an interaction with me. And that doesn't matter which sentence uh, it is. But in my case, he wasn't a sheep, he wasn't a pig, he wasn't a pig, he wasn't an elephant, he was a tiny bit. Well, um, as we sort of touched on, you know, in your book, you know, you give that fantastical, um, fantastic, comprehensive uh, history of the core of veganism. And once again, you know, we don't want to delve too deep um, within this conversation because, uh, folks, you, you've got to you read this to read book. book. It, it is fantastic. Uh, so we're not going to do all your homework for you. Um, but veganism has exploded in popularity over the last few years, and it's quite often viewed as a, a new age lifestyle. You know, it's something that's, that's cropped up all of a sudden. However, this couldn't be further from the truth. Um, we don't want to give away, as I say, too much of the book, but um, would you be able to give our audience just a, a, little, a little touch of this um, history of the, of the philosophy and how far it goes back? Sure. Uh, it goes back millennia. We don't really know how much. Uh, probably I, I explain also in the book that before even we have history and we have the ability to record what happened in the past, probably the whole concept was already brewing in animals uh, be, that evolved into us. Because again, those three questions are relevant to the animals. Who, what is this? Is a predator? Should I go away? What should I do? Is also a reaction of an animal. As long as you send it me, you have you have senses that allows you to detect the wall, and therefore you can ask, what's this? Because the, you have the this is the wall that you detect with the senses. And as long as you have a nervous system that processes this information, you will ask two questions. What is this external wall and who I am? Uh, so that, that probably started with those questions there. But at one point, the answer to the question, what should I do, was do no harm. I'm, I'm not going to harm anything, because it seems that if I don't, probably I'm going to be better uh, at surviving. And that, at one point, become a, a concept in humans that were able to develop concepts. And we already have it in a word. It's called ahimsa. Ahimsa is, is a Sanskrit word. Hims means strike. Himsa means harm. Ahimsa means do no harm or the wish of doing no harm. And we find this word already well-developed 500 years before the common era. But that was well-developed, probably was created millennia before that. But the, at that time is when many religions that we find today started. Uh, Jainism, for instance, uh, uses the word of the concept of Ahimsa very strongly. And uh, uh, Mahavira, this teacher, was using it 500 uh, years before the common era. But he was the 24th teacher of the whole uh, Jain tradition. So probably the, the, the first one millennia before him already used it. Uh, Siddhartha Gautama, contemporary of Magartha, created Buddhism. He's the guy that became enlightened and became the Buddha. He also used his interpretation of Ahimsa. And the Ajivikas, another religion at the time that lasted for 10 centuries, but then eliminated. Uh, so Mikhail Gosal, who was the, when, this, this disciple of, of uh, Mahavira, he also used it. So, and this just India, but then we will go to the Orient around the same time, millennia before the common era, there were the Taoists already talking about yin and yang and the respect of nature and sentient beings. Uh, and then in the Middle East, we have the Judaism and this one sect, hardly people talk about it, there was the Essenes that were very vegetarian. They look at Adam and Eve's story where they live a vegan lifestyle as the thing to imitate. So they, and you, wherever you look, you saw that concept of doing no harm uh, being developed and evolving through the centuries. And my book, what it does is start with all these places and then just see how this concept moves through, ge through geography and through time and never disappears. Sometimes it goes up in popularity, it goes down, it evolves, it expands, it contracts, it changes the tone, and it becomes what we are today. But it's the same idea that the first animals that were looking around and say, what should I do? And one clever animal said, I better don't harm anything. It's the same one. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and um, all too often we get a lot of uh, sort of carnist approaches of, you know, like they're eating meat because it's what we've done for so long. Well, we need to adopt this old approach, you know, of, yeah, do no harm. It's not that we should be harmed. It is fantastic. Exactly. And, yeah, it's, it's so great to delve into this. It's like the most natural thing in the world. It's, it's a part of your book that I absolutely love, you know, and there is just 
um, you know, you're a very, very visual writer. And from the moment I picked up your book, I can just picture everything so clearly, which I just love. You know, it's one of those books that you just can't put down. And for me, you know, I've been vegan for four years now. So I've considered myself to be a pretty staunch ethical vegan for, for most of that time. You know, the more you learn, the, the more you it kind of defines your, your stance on things. But on reading your book, I realized that I still had so much to learn and that there was so much more to being an ethical vegan than most people realize, even, even long-term vegans. And one of my favorite lines from your book, um, probably one of my favorite lines ever spoken, actually, <laughs> is directly under the question um, where it says, what is an ethical vegan? And you respond, tell me who you harm and I will tell you what you are. It's, and I just love that. You know, I love that quote. Um, <laughs> I look forward to using that with a lot of people. But as someone who knows better than anybody, what is the de definition of an ethical vegan? Well, I would not say I know better than anybody. I know as little as everybody else, I would say. And we all have the ability to define veganism in the way we want to define it. There is no rule for that. I didn't. I just didn't create the definition that suit me. I used the definition I saw that already was existing that fit what I thought veganism, ethical veganism was, which is the definition of the vegan society. The vegan society that was created in the UK in 1944 developed this concept, these words, the first time that the word was used. The concept was already there for millennia, but the word was first coined it then. And they defined it different ways uh, with the core of Ahimsa then, the definition, until they kind of settled in a definition in 1988. And it's the same one we still have today, they still have today. That's the one I use, which is basically a philosophy uh, and, a, and a lifestyle that seeks to exclude as far as practical and possible all forms of animal exploitation and animal cruelty. All forms, not just those related to food or related to fashion, uh, uh, and all animals, not just the ones we like, not just the ones that are fluffy. So that definition, the definition of veganism, that is what an ethical vegan is. An ethical vegan is the one that follows the definition, the original definition of the vegan society. You could use it other terms. You can say uh, the original vegans or the true vegans or the full vegans. It doesn't matter. But why we need to have this adjective added to it if it's the actual definition of veganism? Because not long after the definition was created, many people started to acquire part of the definition, but not the full definition, just the diet. Let's say they were half vegans or a quarter vegans, but that doesn't sound good. So they just said, I'm a vegan. And people, if they were not vegans, assume that that's what a vegan is. So at one point, obviously, we can't stop people using the word vegan as, as they want to use it. So the word is not uh, kind of copyrighted in any way. So if people want to use it in this way, then it's up to us to add something to remind everybody what's the original definition. And that's where the word ethical was added. About the 80s. In the 80s is when we start seeing people saying, we need to use something on top of vegan to make sure that this concept is not diluted completely and to be sure that the original definition is maintained. And that's where the word ethical life was added. But in reality, it means a, a proper, truly original, uh, real vegan without kind of uh, deprecating those that are not following the definition and they also define themselves as vegan, which is fine as long as we don't get confused with each other. Our next question was going to be, you know, why um, why is further classification of veganism required? And you, you've already sort of answered it there, you know. It's, that makes um, total sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. and um, why we need to differentiate uh, between, you know, um, what I put as uh, lay veganism, you know, sort of like the plain and then ethical, you know. And um, as you say, it should really almost be the other way around. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a fantastic um, to look at it in that way because in this movement there's a lot of, a lot of times when we sort of separate ourselves from others um and there is a i suppose a need for it in making sure that you know if we're following the true path um of what do no harm means the ahimsa, ahisma um ahimsa ahimsa <laughs> <laughs> i i'd be stumbling a bit today but um yeah, yeah. It, it's fantastic it got me thinking yeah, about oh yeah, you go <laughs> yeah just let me say something because it it is the balance between being able to find the definition that fits you and to get a group of people that we all share the same way of manifesting veganism and therefore we're gonna give us an extra name and not create something that is completely separate. So still share some values and some core understanding with others. They have 
a slice variation and you have straight edge vegans and you have eco eco vegans and you have all these different types of vegans as long as we all agree that there's a commonality that's what we call ourselves vegans in inverted commas but that doesn't matter it's not necessary that we have to eliminate diversity i think diversity is good because if you find a group that manifests veganism closer to the way you do it you will feel more comfortable you will feel better value veganism you will struggle less therefore you're going to stay vegan for longer but you you should not consider yourself the only vegan or the right vegan or the best vegan so you should be welcoming another group that has found another way to interpret it so there is more people who's going to join them rather than do so therefore more vegans in general will be out there because they will be always the perfect type of vegan for them so i think the balance between diversity and uniqueness is what we aim for Definitely. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it, isn't it? It's a great approach. And, um, you know, your historic court case fought for the classification of ethical veganism to be recognized as a philosophical, phil philosophical I, can't, I can't say belief. it now. <laughs> We're having a stumpy down philosophical belief, <laughs> which it is. Um, what does this recognition now mean for ethical vegans and how are we pr protected by law? Right. Obviously, that only applies to the UK because that's where that jurisdiction made that declaration. And in fact, not the entire UK, only Great Britain, because Northern Ireland is not included under the Equality Act, which is the law that, uh, that was applicable in this case. So basically, the Equality Act is an anti-discrimination law that says that you have some protected characteristics, you cannot be discriminated in any way. You cannot be victimized for those characteristics. You cannot be harassed for those. And among those, one could be gender, the others could be sexual orientation, the other could be uh, disability, etc. And there's one of them that it says philosophical belief, but it doesn't define what philosophical belief is, and it has that to distinguish from religion, meaning a non-religious philosophical belief. And because it's not defined, then it requires a judge to go and assess each new belief that claims to be a philosophical belief to see if it fulfills all the characteristics as the law says to be protected. But once you have it, and that's what happened in my case, once it is accepted, you are protected essentially from discrimination. So nobody can treat you differently than anybody else because you're vegan. Nobody can discriminate you in any way. For instance, you are an employer, an employee, and, and then somebody uh, has uh, been given food that is suitable for them by the employer, but not you because you're vegan, you have the right to complain because you're being discriminated or uniforms. You, you're the one who have to buy your own uniform and the employer give the uniform to everybody else that are not vegan. So that will be unlawful too. But not just houses, sorry, not just businesses and work, also services, public and private services. A hotel that says, no, a sign, vegans not welcome. That will be unlawful in the UK now. Or, or a, a public service, a prison. If you're in prison, you need to have your vegan food and your vegan and you have the right now to demand it. Or hospital, for instance, if you're a patient. So it covers a wide range of of, of situations where vegans are normally involved and have to endure discrimination. And we just took it on the chin and said, "Oh well, well, I have to cope with this." Well, now you don't have to cope with it in, in Great Britain. You can just demand equal treatment. And if the employer doesn't give it to you, or the bartender doesn't give it to you, you can go to court and, and probably win. Because my case, what it will give you is the recognition that that the, the philosophical belief of ethical veganism is no inferior than Christianity, Islam, feminism, being disabled, uh, declare yourself a cisgender, whatever. That is already protected. This is the same level. It's absolutely fantastic, so the work that you've done. And um, I can't wait for more countries around the world um, to take have up the baton, yeah. Yeah, take up the baton because I'd love to see that here in New Zealand. But um, all too often, you know, it seems like vegan activists are up against the law in trying to highlight injustices and create a, a vegan world. And it's, it's brilliant what you've done. And I think it's an important point that we make to um, our activists out there. But um, the importance of we us using these structures, these tools that are in front of us um, to create change in our own favor. Um, yeah, how do you feel about this, um, using the law uh, for activism? Yes, I feel very strongly about it. My, my book is called Ethical Vegan, but the subtitle is A Personal and Political Journey to Change the World, because in the end, that's what we want. It's not about me. Veganism is one of the few philosophies that is definitely not only about you, it's part about you as well, but it's mostly about others, being others, other humans, other sentient beings, other creatures in this planet. So it's all about the collective effect of having this do no harm philosophy 
who should change the world for the better for everyone. So how can you achieve that? Well, it's two ways. One is when each and every of us becomes an ethical vegan. It might take 20, 30, 50 generations to get even there, closer to that. The other is use the system. If you use the system where you create laws and suddenly it is illegal to kill an animal, even if only 20% of the people really don't want to kill it, still that law applies to the 100% of the population. You need to use the system. And at the current system we have is a legal system based in laws and regulations and rules. Let's use them rather than fight against them and take far more time and generations to get to our vegan world and doing all this time, many million more of animals are suffering, use the system to cut the time. And if you're clever enough or you're lucky enough, like in my case, you can make big leaps forward if you use the system. It's awesome. And I'm, I'm so glad that you did. You know, it's such a wonderful thing to achieve. And like you say, to, to do this for everyone, to, to create this for everyone. And when you were building your case um, to present in court, we understand you amassed 1,200 pages of evidence. That's incredible. Um, what, what did those 1,200 pages consist of? Well, there are two things I had to prove in the court hearing. There was a pre-hearing where the, my, my case basically was composed of different parts, but what one part was the pre-hearing actually about a year ago, the 3rd of, of uh, January 2020, where the judge had to determine two or answer two questions. One is whether I was an ethical vegan, whether my belief is true, because I could just say it and not being true, and the other, whether ethical veganism fulfilled all those characteristics that had been already established by law that all philosophical beliefs are apathetic should fulfill. And therefore, that's what I had to prove. I had to look at each of those characteristics and see whether I could find evidence that veganism does fulfill that. But the first part is the one that occupied most of my cases because I had to prove that I was an ethical vegan. That means that every decision I made in my life uh, since I was, uh, I've been vegan uh, was uh, with veganism in mind. So anything, anything I bought, any receipt that says, yeah, I bought shoes that were vegan, I had to produce it as an evidence. So I could show there was not just me eating vegan food, there was me buying uh, clothes that were vegan, with me rejecting a hotel because they didn't have soya milk, any conversation I had, which luckily I kept many of these stuff through my life, that could prove that 10 years ago I had an argument with somebody because uh, uh, about veganism, therefore that my belief is a genuine belief, because that's what the first condition that has to be fulfilled, that the belief is genuine. And because I was claiming that affects every aspect of your life, one of the conditions is that affects a substantial part of someone's life. So I had to prove that with my own experience. So a huge percentage of the pages was examples of my life of how I manifest my veganism. But the other part was about books, philosophy, about history, showing about himsa, showing what the history of himsa is, just to basically um, help the judge to realize that it was properly uh, following all the conditions. And in fact, it worked because the first day of the, of the trial, the judge had to spend the entire day reading my pages. There was no time to talk to anyone. And the next day, when I went there to give testimony and I was just prepared to answer any questions, he asked none. He said, I already made my mind. I already read everything I already know. And in that day, which is very unusual for employment tribunal case, he gave the verdict on the same day because I stopped reading all this, he realized, he actually he used this word, he was overwhelmingly convinced that veganism was indeed a protective philosophical belief. Wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> like, um, to all the activists there listening to this and then wanting to get this happening in their country, um, yeah, take that advice, make sure you have the records of these things happening, because it's one of the great things in this digital age of so many, uh, so many of us have these records of things going on in our lives. So um, for you folks out there who are going to be building your case next, um, please make sure you keep those records. Absolutely. Um, I have to jump in with another yeah. question here. Sorry. Um, just listening to you, I just it just makes me smile, you know, listening to your story. But is, did you ever imagine you would be doing this? You know, years ago, we've been reading in your book about, you know, your, your background. Did you ever imagine that, A, you would be doing something so phenomenal for the vegan movement and, and being an author in this way? No. Well, writing a book, yes. I always wanted to write a book about veganism. I never expected that in order for me to write a book about veganism, I had to lose my job, spend two years in litigation and win the case. And then a, a publisher would approach me and said, yes, I want to write you, I want to publish your book because that was what happened. So without this story, probably my dream might have never become a reality. But the story, what it is, kind of pushed me, forced me to write the book. 
but but what I never expected is I was going to be fired. I never expected I was going to be the first person in court. I ne never expected that I was going to win until I won because there was kind of many things that had to happen and I didn't have the money to pay the lawyers. And in the book, you can see all the obstacles I had to overcome. So, and there were all obstacles that easily I could not have overcome if, if Providence had not helped me or, or actually many people did not help me. Many people support me in the case and thanks of that and my lawyers and everybody else involved. So, but I consider myself lucky, but uh, in, in a way, once the case was finished, I knew I had to get the story to talk and I knew that uh, now I could probably write the book I always wanted to read because that's the main motivation. I was trying to find a book about different types of veganism, doesn't exist, about book about the history of veganism, doesn't exist, a book about the vegan world, doesn't exist. And that's what I wrote. I got the book, it doesn't exist uh, because that's the book that I wanted to find. In um, our last season of Activists, we spoke to Katrina Fox and she said um, the point of, you know, when you're looking for that book and it's not there, do it, write it. So, yeah, it is fantastic. Yeah. Um, we understand as well book. from um, your book, uh, your early life, um, your parents taught you to resist. Uh, during your young years, you grew up under the oppression of a fascist regime. And do you think that's um, what really instilled you the urge um, to keep on fighting the suppression, what you're seeing now, uh, seeing now in your life and what you've seen previously? Yes, I think the fact that my parents told me to resist, I was, I'm Catalan, by the way, for those that don't know. And Catalonia in the 60s when I was born was under the occupation of Spain and still is under the occupation of Spain. At that time, though, Spain was represented by a fascist regime. Now it's by another type of regime. But uh, at that time, yeah, the, the, it was the actual environment rather than what my parents told me. Because they, if they had told me differently, I still think that I would have become a vegan because it was the environment of being oppressed that made it rather than reaction to that oppression. Because what happens is when you're oppressed, you're growing up in that world, the world seems a temporary thing. So you see around people that you trust uh, that they are not happy with the system because it's not the right system. So you grow up with this, this sense that this system is not the right system. So it's up to you to either survive it or to change it, which is basically what vegans do. Vegans make, realize, well, this system is not right. Let's go and change it one step at a time. I start to change it, my own behavior, but I hope other people will do the same. But it's easy to do that change when you already have done in your mind what you were growing in a situation that seemed hostile to you. That's why people that are oppressed in any shape or form, I think they're more easily gonna become vegan and stay longer for vegan because they understand this notion that if the system is wrong, you can actually change the system. Well, if you live a very comfortable life where everything was right, you will be very scared of trying to shake the system. Uh, and that is, I think, one of the reasons why I kind of carry on and had this, uh, this vision of, of, of the animals being oppressed as I am, because I, uh, by seeing or remembering my old feeling of oppression, I could sympathize quite easily with other creatures that were oppressed too. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It makes sense. And, you know, it's, it's been, yeah, you've, your life is incredible and fascinating. You've, you've been on quite a journey and who knows where it will take you next. Uh, we've touched on this subject sort of slightly. Um, you know, people often liken veganism to a religion um and indeed as we've mentioned you know we all have similar beliefs and, and an ideology but um you explain very well in your book however how this can't be would you mind sharing that insight with our viewers yes definitely veganism is not a religion because which is something i had to answer so many times from the press the first time i went to public with this immediately the press thought what i wanted to do is veganism a religion and all the headline says the guy that wants to make veganism a religion so i had to answer this question a lot well, first, the, legally, the, the philosophical belief that is in the Equality Act exists to make a distinction from religion. Otherwise, it would not have been the need for me to go through this process because religious, religions are already protected. Had veganism been a, been a religion already, there was no need for a judge to go through it. That's the first evidence that it's not a religion. A judge only had to deal with non-religious philosophical beliefs in order to see the, the conditions that exist. But if you think about it, it hasn't really any of the elements of the, of the religion it doesn't tell you what happened after you die it doesn't have any metaphysics about how the world is created and people might have their own metaphysics that in which veganism is part of it but the different vegan will have another one it's not a shared metaphysics of interpretation of veganism it doesn't have priests it doesn't have monks it doesn't have temples it doesn't have rituals it doesn't have bibles or books or or, or, or of all these sort of scriptures that are many religions are based on so if it doesn't have a leader that you have to follow 
to, to, to believe whether animals are sentient beings. It's all based in the own evidence that you find. And so it doesn't really have all these very classic things that almost all religions have, but it's very ethical. So and that's the thing that is in common. Therefore, meaning that it tells you a behavior that you all vegan agree, this is the behavior should, have, should be happening and this is the behavior shouldn't be happening. So it's a common moral understanding of what's right and wrong that does have that in common with many religions. But the most strong evidence that it's not religion is that normally if you join a religion, you have to abandon the other religions that you used to have before. And that doesn't happen in vegans. There are vegans that are Muslims, that are Jewish, that are Sikh, that are uh, Jains. So you don't have to abandon your religion because you will find some way in your religion a, a way to manifest your veganism without having to change your understanding of, of, of the universe that happens after, after you die and all this, and which was linked to this. So it's clearly not religion, but it's clearly a philosophical belief. Well, thank you, thank you for that insight on that. To be honest, I always find it ironic when um, we get approached with that argument that veganism is a religion when carnists, you know, I feel that's more religious in their sacrificial uh, lambs for their dinner plate <laughs> and such. So, you know. Stop the podcast. We'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to one of our partners, the Divinity Coalition. The Divinity Research Program believes in the power of intersectional behavioral research evidence-based lifestyle change and conscious communications campaigns to support the holistic health of our planet, human and non-human animals. Head on over to theversafoundation.org to learn more. Now back to the podcast. Well, one thing that non-vegans and even some vegans like to say is that nobody can be 100% vegan. Um, What are your thoughts on this? And if it's uh, true, what can we do about it? And that's an interesting question because the answer could be yes or no, depends what people mean 100% vegan. If you mean what veganism is, veganism being a philosophy, of course you can be 100% vegan in the same way that you can be 100% feminist, 100% environmentalist, 100% Christian, because if you do have that belief 100%, then the belief means the belief of not wanting to harm anyone of any of any sentient being. If you had the belief, you, you're not going to have half the belief or a quarter of the belief. But the, you have to make the distinction between the belief and the manifestation of belief. The manifestation means the behaviors that you're going to change since you have this belief. And that will change from person to person because not everybody has the same circumstances that allow them to have the same options to substitute what, something that wasn't vegan friendly with something that is vegan friendly. So you can quantify that because if somebody says, look, I, I think I am 100% vegan, you will find somebody else that does more vegan things than you do. but Perhaps you already done all the things that are available to you, considering the options that are in your uh, in your uh, in your repertoire of options that the life life are giving you. And you can't just uh, compare your options with the options of somebody else in another country from another uh, culture that perhaps have no many vegan options, but yet the effort that this person is doing in avoiding animal exploitation is much greater than the effort that you're doing because the only thing you have to do in a supermarket is move your hand from the normal milk to the soya milk when the other person had to travel 20 miles to get the soya milk. Who is more vegan? The one that travels 20 miles or the one that moved the hand? You cannot quantify veganism in the same way you cannot quantify feminism or you cannot quantify environmentalism. You either have the belief or you know. And how you manifest it is up with your circumstances. And you should never judge somebody else because they manifest it differently than you do. Yeah, that's so true. There's a, there's a lot of uh, competitiveness almost, isn't there, which uh, you know we're, we're hoping to talk about as well. But during your court case to establish ethical veganism as a philosophical belief, we understand a description was given of a day in your life. Um, and mm. it said how each and every action you take is carried out with your ethics in mind. And even if the world might never know of your most minor trespasses, you know, you still always take the most ethical route. And all too often, the members of the vegan community, you know, we face criticism and judgment from non-vegans for taking the long way around. You know, we get labeled as being deliberately awkward or difficult, simply for wanting to live in line with our ethics. And we get told, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you eat that steak or a sausage. No one will know. In your court case, however, you prove that the little things do matter. Can you tell our viewers a bit about this moment and how every action that we take is of value? 
Well, yes, it is a value because again, if, if you understand veganism as a belief, you you one of the things that you have to do when you have a belief is be coherent with it. And if you're not, even when nobody's looking, if you transgrave that belief or do things that clash with it, you won't feel good about yourself. You don't you won't be at peace, you won't be satisfied with these options. And this is really far more important than what other people think about what you're doing. So if, if you leave a false belief, this is not a genuine belief. Belief is you are convinced. The belief is the same thing as a, a conviction. So it doesn't matter how you got convinced, but you're completely convinced that the behavior, the right behavior in the case of veganism is trying not to harm animals. But yet, if you do ignore that when you're alone, that belief is not really convinced. You're not convinced, you just pretend you follow this belief. So that means in the end, you're only gonna, gonna be a vegan if you're satisfied with your own behavior. And it doesn't matter what you do for others. And if you satisfy with your own behavior, that's when you will be a vegan for life. Because that's when you will be you will be the judge, the only judge of your behavior. And and the only one that will tell you, yeah, I I I had I I put the effort, the necessary effort to find a solution. I didn't find it, but the effort was right, therefore I'm happy with what I done. Or the opposite. I was lazy here. I didn't look enough, I didn't read, in, read enough. And you always have to become a vegan, a better vegan. You always have to assume that tomorrow you're gonna to be a better vegan than yesterday. So decisions that you made up to now can be improved. You can find better alternatives. You can learn more about the products. You can learn more about the connection of the products that you thought they were vegans and perhaps they're not. You can be better at explaining veganism. You can be better at, at respecting somebody else's veganism. So you, you have to be humble and always feel that there's a journey in yourself. You never arrived. You never got that line, I'm a vegan. No, no. If you, if you think you're vegan, that means you haven't really got the belief you're quite right yet. You never have to feel that identity, that question, who I am. You never have to find the answer and, and just sit and that's it. You will be a different person tomorrow. You will be a better person. And if you're not aiming to be a better person tomorrow, uh, you're kind of losing about self-esteem there. You're capable of being a better person tomorrow. Therefore, anything that you do in your privacy is as important as anything that you do in public. And that's what the judge recognized. And what the judge was reading my routine, that's how he started reading the verdict. Just took some examples of what I do in the morning and my breakfast in the shower. He was saying it with a subtext that basically said, what he, this guy does is important to him as is anything that a religious person does is important to them, anything that a disabled person does is important to them. You cannot classify that uh, understanding of a belief in a lower level than any of the other beliefs put out there. Therefore, this is an important thing. This detail that is minuscule, minuscule is an important thing. And I was well enough, I was getting very emotional while he was reading it because I was thinking, look, uh, it, 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 it paid off, it paid off for me doing all these things in my life meant I didn't lie. I didn't have to go to court and say, yeah, yeah, I, I buy all my clothes that are not that are from animals and perhaps I didn't. I didn't need to because it was a genuine thing. I was a genuine person in doing it and the judge saw that. Oh, it's fantastic. fantastic. And it's so true. I mean, you with, with your court case, you know, with, with your pension fund, you could have just thought, well, okay, I don't like that, but everything else that I do in my life is vegan. You know, I could just let this go. I don't like this, but you know, it's a pension fund. What can I do about it? But you didn't do that. And what an incredible difference it's made. I will, um, I will have to link uh, in this, in the description of this video, the, uh, I believe it's called the Case Files podcast. And they talk mm -hmm. about the court case in that moment, especially. I loved hearing, um, your your lawyer i believe it was who was saying about how you know you shaved your beard in the morning with vegan electricity you know one that wasn't uh coal powered mm. or anything like that and like just his joy of like learning about that as well and um it's such a wonderful moment and yeah we'll link that podcast because it's a great one to listen to to get a bit more uh in depth in the court case as well as um reading the yes. book too i think every vegan no matter how long you've been vegan i think there is something in here for every vegan to learn. It's just an incredible book. And if you're non-vegan, well, crikey, you're just going to be blown away. <laughs> but, but, you know, vegans, you need this book. Everybody needs this book. <laughs> uh, but um, when choosing the actions that we take, um, in the book, you describe the process of past, present, and future. Uh, when we make decisions in the present, we also need to make the distinction between the past and the future and the lessons to that we wish to teach those involved in the subsequent actions. Can you share with us uh, your, more of your insights on this process? I absolutely love this, this segment. 
Right. Yeah. The 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 thing about the book is the book gives you what I call the foundation of veganism by looking at the past. The past allows you to realize that this vegan thing that we all talk about is been there for a long time. It is properly thought. It's got uh, tested and modified and improved through the years. And, and that was always good because that gives you confidence and that you are you, you're good hearts. This philosophy makes sense. Many people have to do. But when you start to make decisions about your life and what you need to buy, you can also look at the past. You can also look how this product was made, who made it, what was the connection of animal agriculture, animal exploitation in the past. Uh, and then you can also look at the future. If I buy this product, I am contributing to make this sort of product more available in the future. Will other people uh, start to imitate? And I'm sending a message that this is how the, fu the future customers will like the products to be. So you always have to think about past and present. And, and in, in decisions like this, the future is more important than the past because the past, uh, you can't change it, but the past will basically connect uh, animal exploitation with anything if you go far enough. There was nothing, there's nothing that we do that if you go far enough or in time you won't find a connection with animal exploitation. Therefore, it, it, it is a kind of an impossible way to find products that are not connected. But if the practices that the, the element of connected them are not longer practices today, that past connection is irrelevant. What is important is what is going to happen in the future. If I buy this product, will people carry on with those practices or will change the practice? So is the message that you send into manufacturers, to the people that are selling the products uh, by you buying them, that you like or dislike the methods they're using now, not the methods they were using by those who create the product or those before. Like any vegan, any vegan wasn't vegan before, most vegans. It would not make sense to, if we want to create a world that is all vegan, kill all vegans because there were no vegans before. In the past, there were no vegans. Let's kill them all and let's create vegans from day one. So only people that have been born vegan should survive. Would not make sense. When you become vegan, how did you behave before is irrelevant. What you do now matters. The same thing when you, you engage in a commercial transaction. What's the message now you're sending for the manufacturers if they're still connected with the animal agriculture? And you want to say, no, look, I have an alternative and a product similar than yours that is no longer connected to that story, even in the past world, but no now. This is the one I'm going to buy. So, because I don't like that you still hang uh, with those uh, links with animal exploitation. So, the future is what you always have to think, not just the, the present, when you make a choice commercially speaking. Mm, I love that. For me, you know, it really. It was really heartwarming and reassuring for me as well. I used to work in animal agriculture here in New Zealand. And, um, you know, once I went vegan, that was very hard to live with. And, you know, I was sort of say, oh, I can't change my past, but I'm helping change the future. But I didn't really know whether I believed that, whether it was enough. But now, if I hadn't had that insight into the past, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. I wouldn't know to speak out about it, you know, so... It, yeah, I, I just love that part of it. Um, I love many parts of your book as Gareth will, you know, I'll be, I'll be reading it and then stop him from what he's doing and read, read passages from it. And um, I love a quote from you, which says, you know, what unifies all ethical vegans is not their success in avoiding animal exploitation, but their effort in doing it, considering the circumstances, which, you know, we've touched on a little. And in your book, you present the idea of pragmatism versus idealism. And we often see this being argued about within the many social media platforms that we have that our, our movement inhabits. And, you know, at Vegan FTA, it's our belief that we all just need to stop the bickering and all the infighting between different, you know, segments of the movement and just get on with saving the animals. And if a form of activism isn't your own preference, move on, you know, just choose another and, and leave those who are fighting for the same cause or working towards the same goal, just leave them alone and, and you know, they're doing something in a different way, but we're working towards the same future. What are your feelings on this? Yeah, I kind of agree because we, we don't know what works. We don't know. And everybody that tells you, I know what works, you know that probably it's not true. There's no advance in, in progress in society that you can pinpoint a particular tactic, a particular individual, a particular group. Normally, it's a synergy of many factors that work in a particular environment that might never has be replicated again because the environment might never be the same again. So you can't just know the tactics. So the only thing you know is that's the same thing in nature, that the more things you try that are slightly different, the higher the probability that one of them might work. That's the concept of biodiversity. In, in you have a, a ecosystem with a lot of biodiversity, 
there was there will be better chance that if there is a change in the environment, some species survive. If there is a low biodiversity, perhaps there is uh, a change in climate and everybody dies because there's not enough firewood. Same thing with campaigning and, and trying to change the world. The more angles you use, the more uh, styles you use, the more tactics you use, the more chances that some will work. So therefore, uh, I, I, and, and there's no information out there that tells you which one works already. So therefore, the only thing you can do is to be content with whatever you want to do. You don't have to do what somebody else has done. Uh, but uh, don't stop other people doing the things in their own way, unless obviously they are crossing the line. They are no longer working for the winged world, they're working for the carnies world. So there will be obviously a limit. Uh, but in, within uh, the same idea and the same strategy, I mean, the same goal, the tactic we use is what we can play with and try and experiment and hope that the combination of all might get us to work. But we also get, have to be pragmatic. People uh, want to uh, find ways that are comfortable for them, and they, that's understandable. There are things they can do physically, there are things they can do more comfortable. For instance, I don't like their very aggressive activism. I'm not that kind of person. But I'm very articulate. I like the intellectual ones. Uh, but I, uh, but that's me. I'm not. If somebody's angry, of course they're going to shout. But I try to control my anger. Other people might not able to. Other people are sad. Then a visual it might be for them. So how can you control the the, the, the emotions with other people? You, therefore, there's no point just to try. So the, we should be happy that there are people doing things different than the way we do, still trying to aim the same goal. Yeah, that is that's so true. Um, you know, and continuing on that uh, topic of diversity within the movement, you made uh, a point at the recent VegFest talk um, UK, um, VegFest UK talk, shall I say, um, in 2020, about um, how there's no such thing as a general popula uh, population. You know, so often we see the same arguments uh, for veganism being given in so many different countries and so many different cultures. Um, but to be effective activists, um, how important is it that we tailor these messages to our surroundings and adapt it to the local culture we're within? It's very important because you might have the same belief, but when you try to communicate the belief to another person, this process that we call communication is a two-way thing. Communication is you have an idea, you use the language, and you have an audience. And if there's a barrier, that prevents that audience to understanding what you try to say, either because they don't speak the language you speak or they don't understand the concepts, or you use words that affect them in a different way than affect you, that block them and make them not want to listen to you anymore, you fail as a messenger. So if you want to be a campaigner, you want to change the world, you have to become a good messenger. And the best quality of the good messenger is to learn in a different language than the one you speak. So therefore, once you have the idea you want to transmit in all vegans have the same idea. It, if it's the same way you express it for each culture, you know you're doing something wrong already because you might, haven't made the effort to understand that what is the difference that, uh, that you require to make that message as effective as possible, as understood as possible with people that have a different way to understand sound, to understand concepts, to understand the combination of concepts uh, in, in situations that you, you could not possibly imagine if you never experienced the life they have. So therefore, it is important if you if you become a campaigner professionally, even if you're not paid in the sense that that is your main goal to transmit the message of veganism, this, the, your skill will be all about becoming a better communicator. And that skill it will be all based about becoming better able to understand how other people different than you understand the things you want to say. So therefore, I think you know, it's an essential thing to get to that vegan world sooner, because of course you can be vegan by yourself in a mountain, never talk to anyone, good. But if you aim to convince one person, you better speak the language of that person. Yeah, that's so true. Very true, actually. That yeah, that really resonates. And um, you know, it was a fantastic talk. And another point that you made during that talk was about constructing our movement through diversity. And throughout 2020, the the topic of intersectionality within the movement was raised, you know, especially during the Black Lives Matter protests and demonstrations against systemized oppression. Is intersectionality a key for the movement in order to grow stronger and become more effective in achieving our goals? Hmm. Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, uh, very strong, yes. Key, be quiet, because intersectionality is really a framework or, or is a prism, is a way of looking at things 
but it gives you something that you didn't have before, before you use internationality, intersectionality. It gives you a better understanding of the reality of humanity. And of course, what I was saying before about communication, if you understand humans better, you're gonna be able to send the message better, you're gonna be able to tailor the message better and they will understand it more likely. So it would be ridiculous to have this tool that allows you to see how different factors intersect, how people are not just humans, are also men or women or from this race or from that race or from this religion. So they are always intersection in a single creature. If you just ignore everything else, and you only look at 1% of that person, your message will be 99% wrong. In order to have 100% right message, you have to look at all the things that intersect in that person. So if you have this ability to intersect different movements, will allow you to understand better and therefore communicate better. But also will allow you to mobilize people in a more effective way. If you get different movements that you'll try to improve the world in different ways, in different aspects. If you get them together, so we all unify our forces against the, the bad guys, the carnies, which tend to be the oppressors and the carnies are the same bad guys for everyone, no matter which battle you're battling here. If we get together, we are more likely to achieve success sooner. So that, that means strategically, not just from the point of view of communication, strategically, it, it, it opens the door of a better tools to achieve the vegan world sooner. So why would just reject those tools and those understandings uh, if you can improve your campaigning? Well, you only if you think they're gonna make your life more difficult, because it will. If you have to consider more factors, if you have to use more tools, your life is gonna be more difficult. So if you're lazy, a lazy activist, that you just wanna send a message, talk to the mirror and hope that somebody in the street might listen to you, well, do that if that satisfies you. But if you're gonna go, Beyond that, if you aim to achieve something more, better use all the tools that are out there. Intersectionalism is a good tool. We always had, and only now in the recent dec decades, it's been kind of available for us to exploit in a better way that has been used before. Let's use it. I think one thing uh, all of us need to adopt is uh, collaboration into our lives. You know, it became, um, well, I, I took that word from um, Katrina Fox last year, as she said it was her word of the year. So I'm bringing it into my word of the year is collaboration. And yeah, collaborating with so many different movements, you know, means that we can form a stronger front um, in achieving our goals. Um, but a little bit off topic, but a hot topic um, at the moment is cell-based meats. And it would seem that a plethora of companies are attempting to make eating meat uh, more ethical, sustainable, and vegan marketable. Um, I love what you said in, I believe it was actually the same interview, the VegFest uh, UK talk, um, about cell-based meats being the best marketing tool for the animal agriculture industry because it promotes the idea that we still need meat. Um, can you share for our viewers um, your thoughts on this topic? Yeah, you kind of said it already. I'm, I'm against the concept. Not only because I don't consider them to be vegan friendly, since there are animal ingredients in them, uh, and, and not that long ago, it's not when we're talking about the past, we're not talking about an idea that was developed five centuries ago and now it's completely disconnected. It's something that's been developing right now. So therefore, if you want to send a message, don't use animal ingredients. Well, this is the cult. These are the people that should be listening to you. Uh, but because there's the people that are developing these new techniques right now, they didn't exist before. So this is just the reaction of a vegan not wanting to take these products because they don't consider, I don't consider them vegan friendly. But I'm, I'm dislike it for more reasons. I dislike it for the negative effect that will have generally to our movement because I think it will delay that process of, of getting that vegan world. Because what it does is basically legitimize the concept of meat. What we need is to move away of the forms and colors and shapes of animal exploitation, not to replicate them, not to make them look so similar that, that we don't really know now anymore whether this product is from animal origin or not, because we made them so similar until the point this is actual meat, actual animal cells, that no longer you can trust anybody that says, yeah, yeah, you can eat this, it's vegan friendly. Well, but it's still meat. Yeah, yeah, but trust me, it's vegan friendly. How can you trust? So I want all the products that are vegan friendly very different to the ones that are not. And therefore anything that gets you closer to retain these concepts of, of meat. Uh, and, and, and even I don't quite like the purely plant-based burgers and sausages that there are no animal ingredients at all, but they look so similar to the real thing that I can't tell the difference. I don't like that. 
because I want to tell the difference. I want to tell the difference between right and wrong. I want to tell the difference between exploitation and non-exploitation. So of course, who will be those that don't want us to see that difference? Well, the, the companies that produce the bad products, the meat companies, the milk companies. So you see, I'm one of those that when there was all that debate that says, perhaps milk, soya milk should not be called milk or cheese, soya milk, soya cheese should not be called cheese. I was quite happy not to be called milk or cheese because that will make us in the future easy to ban cheese, easy to ban milk. And we get to that policy moment but we have enough of us that we can elect enough members of parliament so we can start passing laws that might ban bacon and might ban cheese. Well, it will be quite difficult if we can't, if we all use the word cheese for both animal and non-animal rights. It will be easier with that. So I think from a strategic or tactical point of view, it, it is something I don't promote, but I understand why it's out there. And if it helps these days people to become vegan for a while and to press months, well, good for that point of view. But I hope that they will move away from them once they've been vegan rather than get stuck with a vegan, but meat concept that is the thing we have to eliminate consciously. That's a yeah. fantastic insight. And um, I know already, you know, for a lot of um, canis restaurants, stuff like that, there's already a lot of things of they say, oh, this is organic grass fed beef, but then really it's the most uh, industrially farmed stuff. So okay. there's already that within um those sort of circumstances and then yeah it's, it's a scary thought for us vegans for then being put into that situation where yeah. we think we're doing something ethical and it, it's it's not because of, um people are being lazy or, or cheap with things you know and they're you know pawning it off as others mm. plus um, we already get asked don't we already with with the plant-based you know the the soil alternatives or the mm. the pea protein alternatives you know why do vegans why do you always want your food to look like meat you know um, <laughs> i mean there is it does go the other way why do you want your cow to look like a burger but um but yeah, you know, that's something that we get. So it's it's not going to help that argument, is it? I would like to also um, point out in our first season of Activists, there is a speak, uh, speaker, Serena Fab, and she shares a little bit on cell-based meats and the production of them being a, a biologist. So for any of our viewers who want to know a little bit more about what really goes into some of the productions, um, there's some great videos on there. So um, check that out in our season one of Activist. Certainly, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm right with you, Geordie. I wouldn't want to touch that stuff in a million years, but, uh, you know, everything's got its place right, right at the moment, as long as we're going in the right direction. We could quite happily talk to you all day, but um, finally, for those of our audience members who want to move forward with becoming ethical vegans, what steps can you recommend? You know, what's a good starting point for someone wanting to live a more ethical life? Right. Uh, I think the first, the first step to take is start with the belief don't start with the behavior. The behavior is irrelevant without the belief. The belief is what matters. So you don't have to tomorrow start not using animal products if you don't know why you're doing this. You need to know why you're doing this. You talk about veganism with others, reads about my book or any other book, understand why you're doing this, and then apply it in your circumstances, one step at a time, as long as, because you don't want to overwhelm yourself so much to the point that you think it's going to be too difficult. It's not difficult. It's only difficult if you make it difficult. But if you don't have a belief to back you up, it will look more difficult because every small big change that you make in your life, it will be incredible, dramatic change that you think you, you, you won't be able to cope. But when you think about why you're doing this, it will become such an easy thing to do. So the belief is the important thing. Understand what a sentiment is, understand what exploitation is, understand what a speciesism is, why you cannot discriminate from one species to another. All these basic concepts that I discussed in my book. Once you understand that, everything becomes easy. And then start with the food, which is easy, move to the clothes, which is also easy, and just never stop. Never find a appointment that says, I already done it. Assume every year that you're gonna get better to the next one. Every year, my New Year's resolution is asking myself the question, what else this year I'm not gonna consume that I consume up to now? Try to find more things to not consume because we consume so much stuff. We live in this society, we consume so much stuff that we don't really need. And one of the things that veganism give you is this opportunity to look at your own habits. Therefore, when you have that opportunity and you decide yourself to start changing, well, use it well. No, no, go beyond animals, go to the environment, go to the things you don't need, because then you'll, you'll, you'll be more fulfilled. The fewer things you need, the fewer things you missed, and the fewer things you need, the fewer things you lost. And so that is always a good strategy in life. So, and keep moving, keep never finding that you're really right, and enjoying the journey, enjoying any decision you make, 
rejecting animal exploitation should be a, a moment of rejoy. The first time I was being in the first years, what I used to do is I used to go to supermarkets and read the labels of products, which I already knew they were not vegan, but I read the label so I could reject the product. And I loved the actual action of rejecting the product. I was in control of my life in the first time. And that is a positive feedback that, that together with the philosophy will make you vegan for life. And that's what we mean. We don't need vegans for a month. We need vegans for life. Thank you for listening to this interview. We hope you found it informative and entertaining. To learn more about Geordie's work, pick up his book, Ethical Vegan, A Personal and Political Journey to Change the World. Once again, be sure to follow us on our social media pages for future episodes. And if you're enjoying our content, please leave a review on your chosen podcast platform. This has been Vegan FTA, Vegan for the Animals.